and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Mem Dalit, page 44. Page 44, I would say, is kind of some quintessential Ketubot, Ketubot Gemara. I'm going to start from the top of the daf. We probably could read the whole daf in terms of the value of the back and forth of this Gemara, um, but we're not going to. Um, okay. I'm going to dive in and use the Gemara itself to talk about what we want to talk about. Amar Mar, Ibaya Bahai Gavya, Ibaya Bahai Gavya. So this Gemara is following on the discussion of the previous daf, which was where Rav Huna talks. We didn't, we did not talk about it in the podcast, where Rav Huna talks about um, the basic sums that would go that are the value of the ketubah, which is 200 dinar for a virgin and 100 dinar for a non-virgin. And the question of what happens, you know, from the time of betrothal, the woman basically has a lien on the property of the man for the, in that amount, right? Meaning in the event of divorce or death, she's entitled to that sum. So it's fundamentally a lien. Um, now, the Gemara here, meaning on on Memdalid today is talking about what happens if she wants to collect, right? So Rav Huna says that if she wants to collect the sum that was specified in the marriage contract, right, she could do so. And if she wants to collect the sum that was specified in the other marriage contract, because here we're talking about this person who has been, you know, betrothed, in, betrothed, um, divorced, widowed, right, the whole, I'm sorry, married again, widowed, the question of whether it's betrothal or um, or a full marriage seems not to be significant at this point. Um, and But his point here is if she wants to collect that amount, she could collect that amount. If she wants to collect from the other one, she could collect from the other one, even if it's the same amount, right? Meaning the point is that um, she can make the choice. According to the Gemara here is saying, this is Rav Huna's position. However, the Gemara asks, Lema Pliga de Rav Nachman, Maybe we're going to say that this opinion, this whole approach, agree. Um, sorry, disagrees with that of Rav Nachman. The Amar Rav Nachman Shnei Bitel Sheni Et Harishon. He Rav Nachman was known, I think, to be a, a really you know head and shoulders above most of the rest when it comes when it came to civil law, these like property kinds of issues, and. Um, you're then you can correct me if I've got that wrong, but that was my my recollection about Rav Nachman. And he is talking here about a, a in general, meaning he's talking about documents, not about ketubot in specific. And he says that if you have one document, meaning that's an agreement, right, between two people, and then you have another document, again, between the same two people, right, then, and we're talking, let's say, for example, um, and the example that the Rishon I'm talking about here is, we're talking about a transfer of ownership of a field, for example. So that second document is an agreement that nullifies the first document. Meaning you made a contract, fine, it's a good, it's a good, it's a contract in good standing. You didn't cancel the contract officially, but by virtue of having a second contract, according to Rav Nachman, you have, you know, it's tantamount to canceling the terms of the first one. And now you have to like follow the terms of the second one. And according to that rationale, then the second ketubah should cancel out the first ketubah. Right, meaning the fact that this woman has ended up with in her life two ketubot, and the Gemara wants to say that she could choose either one, right? And that could be what she, what she, you know, gets as the ketubah money. Uh, according to Rav Nachman, or according to the Gemara's 
attempt to understand Rav Nachman in this context, the second ketubah should nullify the first ketubah, and that should be what she's entitled to. The Gemara, however, you know, cancels this out, does not like this idea. Love me itmar Allah, right? Weren't we talking about this halacha, meaning this halacha of Rav Nachman, Amar Rav Papa, didn't Rav Papa say about this halacha of Rav Nachman, Rav Papa said that Rav Nachman agreed that if he, if the one of these people, right, had added so much, uh, some of the people in the contract, right, had added so much as a dikla, as a palm tree, into the second document, then that makes it look like an addition and not a cancellation of the first one. Meaning that it would somehow, it's a revision, right? We do this all the time nowadays, right? Doc one, doc two, copy one, copy two. Um, so the idea that he's adding something into the marriage contract, for example, that the sum of money might be larger is not the same thing as canceling the first one. It's simply that, you know, in fact, she's going to perhaps be entitled to more. Um, okay. Then what happens is that the Gemara goes on in this discussion about Rav Nachman, meaning We've talked about Rav Nachman and his view, and it's an important discussion in general. So now we're going to have a whole big discussion about this, which I'm not going to read inside. Um, but it it delves into different possibilities, right? Like, what is the nature of the of these um, starot, of these contracts, right? Are we talking about a, a sale? Are we talking about a transaction that was a gift? Right? There's a whole bunch of different ways that there's going to be practical differences, and the Gemara is going to say. What are the practical differences there? And now, then the Gemara comes to this next point, which is the part that I was hoping to get to. And then, Yordan, I'll turn it over to you. So the Gemara says, you know, all of this business that we've just basically skipped over, right, is uh, is about, it's a general discussion, right? And the Gemara wants to know what happens if we're now talking about a ketubah. Meaning, we've had here, there's a, there's, going back even to the previous stuff, there's this dispute between Rav Huna and Rav Ashi, and the question of whether that lien on the husband's property is going to apply from, and this is, I alluded to this before, whether um, from the time of Erusin, from the time of betrothal, or only at Nisuin, only at the time of marriage. And so the Gemara is coming back to talk about that, right? Like, how does all of this discussion of contracts in general and one negating another affect the Ksuba. Tashma, Da'amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel, Mishum, Rav Elazar, Rav Shimon, Mane Matayim, Mina Erusin, V'tosefet Mina Nisuin. So the Gemara says, like, here's, here's the ruling. Come in here. Here's the ruling that Rav Yehuda said, that Shmuel said in the name of Rav Elazar, Rav Shimon, namely that the lien on that property is going to be with regard, it's either going to be 100 dinar or 200 dinar, depending on who the woman is and whether she's a virgin or not. But that basic sum is only going to, that it kicks in from the time of betrothal. But any additional sum, tosafot, any kind of, you know, extra stipulations that might have been included in the ketubah by virtue of this particular family, those additions only kick in from the time of nisuin. So that there's a basic um, basic funds are in place from the time of the of the betrothal, and the extras are only will kick in from the time of marriage. But the sages say, no, it really only takes place from marriage. Forget this betrothal thing. And again, we've got a Gemara conclusion here. What the halach is going to be? I said before that this can be this is unusual. 
it's getting less unusual where we are, right? In this context, that namely that the halacha, when it comes to the question of the woman's rights to this ketuba money, um, it kicks in as much as she's, you know, as much as if they get divorced, at the, as much as, let me say this better, as much as betrothal needs a divorce, her entitlement that is guaranteed from the ketuba only takes place from the time of marriage. Over to you. So I think one thing to note here, and we need to keep this in mind, there hasn't been a lot of ketuba discussion yet. We're starting to get to it. Is please notice that it's very clear from this Gemara that the ketuba were tailored to individual situations. Um, you know, today we just have a, um, you know, standard ketuba uh, that we use. But it's clear that this was really functioned as a real uh, prenuptial agreement in the sense that people obviously put in uh, their own stipulations. Uh, I, I think the Gemara says that very, very clearly here. Yes. Yes. The same way that it could have been, you know, on the one hand, it could have been this time, you know, a certain sum of money that was going to be standardized. But the Ketubah, as, as its origins, it could have been like, you know, a Ming vase, meaning it could have been like a piece of art. It could have been a samovar, I think, is the example that's in the Gemara. Right. Like the the item has it could be an item that has value that then the woman could then go and sell. And that's going to be tailored to whatever they have that's on hand, you know, to be able to provide those funds. It's not necessarily cash money. Right. And so that's very different than how the Ketubas used today. I just want to point out there's a book I have on my bookshelf, which I'm not in front of now, uh, but it's about the Ketubot of the Cairo Geniza. And what's very clear, it was put out by JTS years ago. Um, it's an old book that I somehow found in like an old bookstore. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is when you read those ketubot, they're very specific to the person and their particular uh, circumstances of marriage, how much a husband could travel, travel uh, children that needed to be supported that came from a previous marriage. So we see this in the Gemara, right? That is an old tradition. It's not one, it's not a way in which we use our ketubot today. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we actually get to the ketubot part of Masachet Ketubot. Um, I'm going to move on now to a new Mishnah that we have here. Um, and this is an interesting Mishnah because it basically deals with the law of Motsi Shemra, which is essentially that like uh, it's, you know, the defamer, right? Somebody sort of accuses a woman or, or badmouths a woman that she did something. But what happens if that woman was a convert or it's the daughter of a convert? And at what point do we treat her like a full Jewish woman, or at what point do we treat her sort of as a non-Jewish woman because of the time that maybe the act took place? So the Mishnah reads as follows. So we have a case of a woman who converts, and the daughter converts with her, right? So the daughter is like a young child or whatever, a young woman, right? And the daughter engages in some type of non-permitted a sexual relation when she has been uh, betrothed, like when she's in Erosina. Again, it's one of these missions. There's all these little details that the Mepharshim have to fill in for you. It's not clear from when you straightforward read it. So she would be killed by uh, strangulation, right? And not stoning, okay? Uh, strangulation is the, me- not stoning is the method of, uh, of, of capital punishment that would have been given to her 
had she been born, had she been born Jewish. Um, but because she wasn't, uh, it, it, it's strangulation. She also doesn't have the halakha that she has to be executed by the entrance of her father's house. And the Gemara will go on to explain why that is later on. There's a whole that's on tomorrow's step, actually, um, as would be the case of somebody who's born Jewish who committed that same crime. And also, she doesn't get the 100 sela, right, if her husband actually, you know, did this act of motzi shamra, defamed her falsely, saying she committed adultery, and she didn't actually commit adultery. And the reason for that is, is that the pasuk that deals with that series of halachot, um, which is in Devarim 22.19, it uses the word Yisrael, which means it, it has to be applied to those who were born as Jews. Haitaharata. Um, Let's say the daughter's conception takes place, right? Right? So the mother, you know, is basically uh, pregnant when she converts. And then by the time of her birth, the she's born uh, while the mother is in this state of sanctity, meaning while the mother's Jewish. Then the daughter is punishable by stoning if she commits this act of adultery. Because there she's considered to be Jew- that she was born Jewish. However, she still doesn't have the salacha of doing it at her father's house, nor the 100 cell of her, if her father defamed her. So it's sort of like a half and half. We're acknowledging, though, there's still a piece of her that was not fully Jewish when she came into existence. But if both the conception and birth happened when the mother was Jewish, then she's fully Jewish for all of these halachot. Right? If this young woman who commits adultery, she has a father but doesn't have sort of an entrance to a father's house. Let's say the father doesn't own his house or something like this. Or let's say she has an entrance to a father's house but she doesn't have a father. He passed away. She still would be executed with 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 skila, um, right? That that having that requirement of a father's house and an alive father is not a requirement for the capital punishment, but it's more it's it, it's part of what should happen that it takes place at the entrance of the father's house should those uh, circumstances um, be there. So the Gemara basically very very interesting Mishnah. Uh, because we've seen in Yavamod in particular, we had a lot of discussion about converts and how we have to embrace converts. And here we sort of have this like uh, interesting uh, discussion that sort of seems to imply that a, a woman who's conceived, not when her mother is Jewish, there's a little piece of her that's not considered to be uh, that's not considered to be fully Jewish. And, and I think that seems a little bit odd uh, to, to all of us. The Gemara basically goes on here to quote a series of Sukim to understand how do they learn many of these uh, many of these uh, halachot. Uh, how does Motzi Shemra work if she's orphaned? Uh, you know, in a bunch of a variety of, of of different discussions, which you'll get when when you read the Gemara um, itself. How do we know it's a minor versus an adult woman? It, it's really a series of midrash halacha here. Um. Yeah, I think it's an interesting appearance at this time in the Gemara. Maybe I'm 
maybe I'm overthinking this, but I, I don't know. It seemed like a little bit of a departure from where we've been. Right. There doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to some of this, uh, you know, um, how this Masachet is particularly constructed. <laughs> I imagine that if we really had expertise, you know, we could see more rhyme or reason. But at this point, I'm and with maybe you. We should pay attention a little bit more if we can figure out some kind of form of structure to this message. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Vinny Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.